Welcome to the final episode of Pop Law Stories of Singapore Pop. Over the course of this series, we have traced the ups and downs of local music across generations and genres through different eras of Singapore's history. Are there insights from these artistic journeys of the past that can help us navigate today's music industry? So I'm Weish, a sound artist who works across different genres and disciplines. I'm also part of electronic duo .gif, prog experimental band Sub Shaman, audiovisual collective syndicate and theatre company Checkpoint Theatre. In this episode, I'll be chatting with some of today's music makers to find out what they think the future holds. I'm joined today by Ruth Ling, Yang Raja and Charlie Lim. Let's start by checking in with everyone and what they're up to. Um, let's start with maybe Ruth, a musician who founded indie label Red Roof Records in 2012. She was also the head of A&R for Universal Music China and is now exploring new opportunities in the intersections of music, tech and business. Hi Ruth! Hi Weish! <laughs> well, that was a great introduction. I've been lucky to have a multifaceted career. So in my early career, I was a singer-songwriter, even played in a girls' band, put out a couple records, which is nice. really important because to be the artist is to understand the artist's psyche. And as I pivoted, I started to become a music producer, did a lot of arranging. You know, as I got into my mid-30s, I thought that my one dream at that time was to become like a Motown, you know, because I love Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, and all of that. And so I started Red Roof Records, which was one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life, because I'm just a musician. What do I know about business? So you learn from the ground up. And I became a music manager. I became a music publisher. And that all led me to Universal Music China, where I spent the last three years in Beijing, learning much more on the ground about the China market. So I was head of ANR, and that is a totally different side of my brain. The business side, the strategic side, that all came out. And I think that helped to put kind of that, complete the picture of how mm. executives, of how business and corporate really think about the music industry because it's a business. Amazing. It sounds like you've done it all, all different facets of the industry, used all the facets of your brain, as you said. Well, I really look forward to mining all these rich experiences in this chat. Next up, let's hear from Young Raja, whose signature English Tamil lyrics have made him one of Singapore's hip-hop trailblazers. Hey, Young Raja. Hi, Wish. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to meet all you guys. Hey, it's a real pleasure to be in Singapore and to do what we love and to even get the opportunity to, you know, represent the city. Very grateful to be able to do what I do with the people that I do it with. It's, it's all very fun. Yeah, no, it looks fun. Like, you've got this signature smile that's all over everything you do. And it's just such a joy to watch you, like, do your thing. Again, gonna mine your brain in the coming minutes. And last but not least, we have singer-songwriter Charlie Lim, who recently received the Young Artist Award from the National Arts Council and is also currently music director of Indigo, an internet radio station that showcases local and independent music, finally. Hey, hi Wish. It's so good to see all of you, and uh, thanks for having me on this. I'm not a multi-hyphenate like you guys are. You know, I'm just a singer-songwriter doing my thing. And it's uh, I've I've just kind of stumbled into I guess various parts of the industry. I've been doing music for about more than ten years now, and uh, I've been very blessed and privileged to just be able to kind of do what I love for a living. 
you really downplay what you do, Charlie. Because, I mean, you're so much more than a singer-songwriter too. Not that there's anything wrong with being just a singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. but, you know, you've been writing with people, producing with and for other artists and sort of taking a director role for, you know, new initiatives and supporting the scene in so many different ways. So I really do consider that a multi-hyphenate thing. Okay, we're going to dive right in because this whole series has been sort of covering the journey that Singapore music has taken, right? And was created partly because the history of Singapore pop is not super well known. So I'm curious about how relevant or present local music history has been to you as creators. Like, does our past shape your present in any way as you work today? Well, I'll start because I have more history than you guys. I think that, you know, as we grow up, what we consume and what inspires us forms our unique personalities. I mean, we take what's distinctive to us, but most definitely we fuse it with the stuff that we love, right? I've been following the series. I was very jealous that in the 60s, it sounded like party town rock and roll Singapore. Yeah, man. You know, I grew up in the 80s, but it was pretty sterile. Everyone's in engineering, banking, finance, you know, medicine and law and everything. Uh, There are very few musicians that came out in the 80s. As I was growing up, I loved uh, the music of Dick Lee, uh, of Jimmy Yeh, uh, of the Sing Yao Pioneers. So that very much shaped my aesthetic. Um, So I think understanding our history gives us that sense of identity. It's like, oh, that's why. My aesthetic is that way. It's not fully westernized. It's not fully Mando in that sense, but it's just a little bit Roja. Yeah. How about you guys? I love what you just said. Like It resonates so deeply with me. I guess when I stumbled upon music or hip hop, that is exactly what it helped me do, you know, like merge the East and West. And we as Singaporeans are so unique, right? Like we grew up with that type of a circumstance that allows us to be influenced by two or more worlds. And then we as Singaporeans contextualize all of the worlds as like a Singaporean experience. And me as a first generation Singaporean, like my family found it very interesting that within the same household, we are going through different journeys, you know, and music helped Mm. me do that. So I feel you, Ruth. How about you, Charlie? For me, I guess I found it really difficult. You know, I didn't have many heroes growing up. You have to go out of my way to look for for people. Hey, how come, why? Then not many people doing music in Singapore where are the artists where are the singer songwriters you know and in fact Ruth was one of them at the time and, we, and uh, yeah you know artists like Corinne May as well so I think like I had to kind of go out of my way to to learn more about uh, local bands and then realize like oh crap there was an entire like 20 years of history just kind of wiped out we had our own little cultural revolution <laughs> whoops yeah, I guess like, you know, our, our generation's influences, we, we're definitely drawn from like what we were exposed to at the time, right? So, you know, with the boom of the internet and file sharing and YouTube and whatnot, so a lot of what we consume growing up, it would be Western pop music, mm-hmm. right? So we might not be tied to like specific musical heritage or identity per se, but at the same time, like we exist and do what we do because of who laid the foundation before us so i'd say it's necessary to recognize the ones that paved the way uh, even though it's not related to your genre of music at all right um, but you know these these artists uh, and also the people in the music industry and those in the public sector who who champion for the arts you know so that and that's why we can do what we do today yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right that really resonates with me though that uh growing up for me as well you you had to go out of your way to discover that 
the local scene existed. Like it wasn't really a major part of our consciousness. And I guess growing up with like emo and hip hop and, and all of those things from outside of Singapore. And then for me only later discovering that, oh my gosh, we have a history here. And then as in for my own journey, it was more underground scenes like Syndicate, The Observatory, realizing that they've paved the way for alternative voices and have this cult following and there's a place for weirdness and experimental music here, which was to me like mind-blowing yeah, and, and, and so And that people weird. outside of Singapore were actually listening to our bands mm. that we don't yeah. even realize existed. Exactly. Yeah, and but that wasn't always the case. So for me, learning, right, that, you know, local music was thriving organically in the 60s where like the Quest and all these bands were sometimes taking top spot on the radio above the Beatles, you know, locally and regionally. And all the way up until famously the government clamped down on rock music, mm. <laughs> which kickstarted that decline in the local scene and eventually created you know, a listening public that was not used to or exposed to hearing original English local music at least and thus no longer very supportive of it. And yeah, I mean, what Ruth was saying earlier rings so true in history that this lasted for close to 20 years and only up in the late 1980s when Made in Singapore English songs started to become, you know, more regularly heard again on radio. Yeah, so there's been that general common theme of local music being very hard to sell to listeners here as a result of what happened in the 60s, the no long hair, no rock music situation. I don't know how I feel about this, but do you guys think we've recovered from the death of the music scene in the 60s or that we're still finding our way there or are we there? Yeah, I think if there wasn't this sudden breaks in the music industry, it would have been so different now because... Perhaps we would grow up as a culture with music and the arts integral to us. I think as Singaporeans, generally, in the past few years, past decades, the emphasis has been very much on survival in terms of technology, business. And that's all very important, obviously. And so I think the arts become something that was sidelined for quite a long time. Um, but that being said, we can see, you know, with, for example, with the Esplanade or with SOTA, with the coming of Arts College, I feel that we plant the seeds for the future. So if there's a shift in mindset now where the government and the people want to embrace the arts more, and we've been attracting all these tech companies, entertainment companies to have their Southeast Asian or Asian hubs in Singapore, and so this is a great opportunity for our young people who are interested in the creative arts to really have a shot at doing something that is extremely high quality and can travel. I feel that is not as bad as in the 70s and 80s and 90s. I see a lot of young, hungry crowds at Charlie's concerts, you know, Gentle Bones and all that. So I can only hope that this is going to pick up more and more as we go forward. How about Charlie and, and Raja? Do you guys feel like we are in a golden era or like not yet golden? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess for myself, like, you know, releasing my first like, record in 2011 now. So kind of rode that wave of like singer-songwriters and indie bands just coming out and doing their own thing, you know, just being like unabashed about it. And then there were a lot of opportunities at the time as well in the last five years or so. There were so many festivals going on pre-COVID 
you know, laneway and whatnot, right? Being like the, the kind of most commercial indie festival. Of course, they also invited a lot more other international bands to come in to perform. There were a lot of promoters coming into Singapore because we're just like an easy like transit place. I think that also opened up a lot of opportunities for local bands to perform and play and, and share stages. There's also a lot more, I guess, journalism around music and entertainment. Bandwagon, for example, you know, kind of mm-hmm. spearheading that, like growing from like a gig finder, you know, into mm. into a whole editorial thing. That kind of planted the seeds, you know, for what it is today and social media and pop culture and whatnot. That that's also a huge part to play in how people like get to hear music and how things go viral. Like for example, how like this whole rap, hip hop, trap culture, you know, in you know, just the last four or five years ago exploded. I guess a lot of uh, artists here has also wrote that wave and recontextualized it, you know, in their own mother tongue. So getting to see Rajit and Faris doing like Puri Gang, that just blew mm-hmm. my mind. I was like, yes, finally. Yeah. <laughs> I was just so excited, you know, to seeing that. And it resonated with so many young people. Yeah, that's been very encouraging and inspiring. Absolutely. Like that has been the biggest shift that I have noticed. I mean, I started about five years ago. When I started off, the vibes were different, you know, about pursuing hip hop. I guess nobody could see how this could work, you know, because it's such a small scene and mm. there's no foundation that's already been built, a framework that's already been built for you to just walk in and, yeah, I'm going to be a full-time rapper today, you know what I mean? Like, it's nobody yeah. sees that path. Well, Charlie said about social media, this is facts. Like, my life, Faris's life changed because of Twitter, because of a freestyle mm-hmm. that we posted. And... You know, the series of events that came from that has shaped the hip-hop and rap community here. And like now you see a lot more younger kids mm. thinking about being a rapper. They don't see it as something that is not possible. And the hip-hop scene now is way more vibrant than it was like five years ago. With Hell all yeah. these young talents that are committed and they are pursuing it for real. It's all very exciting. It is, yeah. I mean, definitely, I think you can only go up from here thanks to you guys as well and, you know, all the sort of examples you are setting visibly online, you know, to young people who now see that it's possible, like you said. And I'm feeling that so hard, especially, um, Charlie and Rajit, what you guys were talking about with recontextualizing, you know, genres into localness. And being a version of hip-hop or of indie or of pop that is sort of unapologetically still ourselves. And that's something that I want to talk about next, actually. It's this phenomenon of cultural cringe. It's an actual academic term that I've learned recently. And it's defined as an inferiority complex about one's own culture and accents and, you know, ideas and everyday habits and that kind of thing. And I think... At least when I was growing up, I would hear many people like listen to local singers for the first time and go, wow, don't sound like Singaporean. Cannot tell, it's local. Very good. you know, <laughs> Or like cringe when they hear any hints of Singlish or local accents, be it in songs or even in theatre, even in poetry. And the major shift when I felt that, that attitude shift was with hip-hop, you know, with, with Akim Jahat, Sheikh Aiko Faris, and of course, um, you, uh, Young Raja, who, who you know, you've always been so boldly and unapologetically yourself and brought your own flavour to the hip-hop scene that at least I've never seen before. And I think that elevating of localness and yourselfness as worthy of becoming art is so important. Like, the kids can now see that 
hey, it's actually very cool, you know, to be yourself and not an imitation or carbon copy of what you hear in American or UK hip hop scenes. Yeah. If you could speak about that for a bit, like what gave you the confidence to sort of break the mold in this way and just be you, you know, in a world where we're all kind of trying to, to approximate to what we think is cool. My experience was very interesting because I grew up with a lot of uh, kids that are third, fourth, fifth generation Singaporeans and they didn't really feel a connection to their roots. They don't speak their mother tongue. They don't know much about their culture. You know, it's not like they choose to not know about their culture. It's just not in their peripheral, so to speak. Um, but I grew up being a first generation Singaporean, like my connection to the roots and the culture was so intact because of my family that moved from South India. And being the only person that was born and raised in Singapore within the family, like that duality was um, always there. Like I was always connected to my culture and my language and my traditions. So I went to school, in primary school, secondary school, I would see all these kids that are shy to speak Tamil. They would pretend like they don't know how to speak Tamil because of what you said, like they feel some kind of weird f feeling to, you know, just be themselves. And I never understood that. And I've spent pretty much my entire life trying to get to the bottom of why somebody would shy away from being who they are, you know. And that is exactly the part that music came in that helped me say things that I've always said, you know, like Tanglish is, is what they call it, Tanglish. Nice. And... I realized that a lot of people were aligning with me and not aligning with me. And I feel like the music allowed me to glue those things together and kind of set like a new representation, you know, because we have to know about ourselves. We have to know our stories. And those conversations don't happen as often. So I use my music to set that message across. Yeah, you suddenly allowed people to consider... Tamil or whatever their mother tongue is as cool and worthy of being a part of music. Yeah, and it's a part of them. <laughs> in, in a lyric. It's a part yeah, of you. Yeah, exactly. The longer you spend not addressing the parts of you, it's going to be tough, you know, because you're trying to put yourself across to the world. You're trying to speak your truth. How are you going to speak your truth if you're ignoring 50% of you? <laughs> it doesn't make sense, right? Like, and I mean, that's, I'm still uncovering it. I'm still learning about it. But it's been so fulfilling in the last five years to um, empower people in my community. Yeah, you've totally done that and more. So it's really great to hear. Ruth, Charlie, any thoughts on how that might have played out for you in your own experience? Yeah, I, I'm guilty of it, for sure. No, me too, for yeah, sure, I, along, you know, along the way. Uh, growing up, Singaporean sound was a bit like, why are you so like that? Uh? Hey, why are you so like that? Or oh, it was a mix of, you know, for people's association, we have to put tablas together with gamelans, together with kuchung, and then like, you know, have some <laughs> for National Day, it kind of works. But and, and as much as it may resonate with me, am I proud to show it to my friends in in US or even in Taiwan? It's kind of like, oh, no, maybe I should just keep it to myself. And yeah, I never thought about it as cultural cringe, but I think I'm most definitely guilty of it. But that being said, I feel that the tide is most definitely changing. And I think the difference is we've come to accept ourselves the difference is there is an economic shift as well, certainly from the West to Asia. And so, you know, our time most definitely, if hasn't really already come, is coming. And we kind of really want to get on board with that. So I'm very, very, very excited about that. I really feel the tide changing. How about you, Charlie? Yeah, I, I feel like the 
the term like cultural cringe is also perpetuated when you purposely try to like, oh, let's do this like fusion of... <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like what you were talking about earlier about, you know, putting the guja and the tabla and oh my gosh. <laughs> like as soon as you have like this formulaic kind of rojakness, to me, that's that doesn't sound authentic, you know, like... So I think trying to experiment, like trial and error, fusing things that are, you know, in, in this case, like if it's like trap music or... or Hip hop, you know, with yeah, because some of the 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 way that like Rajit can spit <laughs> the subdivisions, the flow that he has, you know, it just goes so well, right, with a certain like tempo and a certain beat, right. I think it's mm-hmm. like finding those little like elements of yeah juxtaposition that you can bring new things together, and experiment. I think that's like that's when it becomes fun and exciting, and like mm-hmm. that's fresh, you know. I think that mm-hmm. if you can embrace that, I think that's like that's really exciting. I I was just thinking about this this cultural cringe thing again, and and like I definitely grew up with that inferiority complex. I don't know if this is like a Chinese Singaporean thing. I never resonated with like Chinese music. Like I never really understood like Mando Pop or, you know and then also like moving to Australia, you know, when mm-hmm. I was like fourteen and I got to do music there and for a while I was like, oh actually, you know, people do appreciate what I do, you know, and I can perform and sing and well that's that's another whole thing to unpack altogether because that's this goes into me thinking that I'm getting validation when I'm <laughs> performing overseas, right? And then performing to an international crowd, etc. Then, oh, maybe I can do music. That was my thought process at the time. And, you know, there weren't that many opportunities back when I was, I was in secondary school, right, to, to perform. And suddenly going moving overseas, I had more opportunity to do that. I guess it's similar for yourself, Ruth, when you went to Berkeley. And I guess that thought is like a paradigm shift, right? Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot more opportunities now uh, for younger kids to... Uh, go to art school, find different communities to yeah make music and art with. I was doing this like indigo session, like a live session at Snakeweed, and we were recording like these boys um from Carpet Golf, and they did like an introduction. Hey, you know Carpet Golf, uh, we're from Serangoon, and like there was this brief moment of hesitation. They was like, hey, is that Lema? <laughs> and then immediately, I know lah. Let's just own it. Then yeah, hi, we're Carpet Golf from Serangoon. You know, and it's that. like, yeah, you'd never get that, like, you know, 10 years ago, right? Or exactly. MTV Asia or whatever. Hey, you know, I'm oh, this, I'm from Geelang or whatever. And yeah. speaking of Geelang, there's like this whole commune of artists and producers, like, mm. just setting up shop there and, and yeah, yeah just rotating door. Yeah, and, and lower records as well. Amazing. There's just so much going on. And they're just owning it. Like, yeah. G Town, <laughs> exactly. G Town, yeah, and like uh, under under that whole series, like the the Geelang Afro band and yep. like it's you so know cool. all of that. It's so. Or even word. when, uh, yeah, when Akim Jahat just released that song back back way back when uh, about Woodlands, yep. you know, mm-hmm. or Ribena, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like Minamoto, you know, so cool. and elevating all of those everyday things that are part of our experience into something that's suddenly cool mm. and like worthy of being art. Yeah, so it's so big. I'm, I'm so glad like there's so much of that shift as well. I just want to add on something like it's so cool because I feel like nowadays one of the biggest shifts that has been happening is the fact that we as one country, we as like Singaporeans, we're all figuring out what it means to be Singaporean. And I feel like yeah. that has been something that has been in people's minds for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, across all the different, uh, you know, communities in Singapore. Like, what does it actually mean to be a Singaporean? And I, 
artists have gone through their own path and trying to figure that out. People from other industries all trying to figure that out too. But mm-hmm. this generation, thanks to internet, thanks to Gen Zs with TikToks, right? Everybody's so connected. They now feel a different type of energy when it comes to being Singaporean. And the way they talk about it is different. The way they represent themselves is different. They are more vocal about Singlish. They're more vocal about things that make Singapore Singapore, you know, mm. which I think is so cool because I see it in my nephews and nieces. Like I see them, the way they talk about the country is so different from the kind of conversations that was around when I was growing up. And that wasn't too long ago, you know. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. And, you know, I just spent two months in Australia so I decided to visit this Australian music vault, which is a bit like a pop history mu- museum of Australian music. And I think they, a bit like us, are also struggling to find what Australian music really is. I think in the end, they just decided it was music made by Australians. But yeah. the difference is, every gig I go to, people are always cheering for the Australian bands. And I just feel so happy to see that there's so much pride, right? In the fact that you're supporting local music. And I, I'm so envious of that. But it sounds to me, yeah, like what Raja said, you know, we have more and more of that. Listeners who are proud of that kind of authenticity in the music and happy to support local. Yeah, like crowds singing along and rapping along with you. The yeah. scores of people who've remembered all your lyrics. Like that kind of thing makes me so happy to see. Yeah. That's a shift for real. Like I, I, I feel like I've been feeling it firsthand, you know. Yeah. Too for too long, too many people have been thinking that local music is not for us. Like Singaporean music, nah. We rather listen to K pop, rather listen to things that are outside of Singapore. Hmm. And that's been like almost like a pattern of behavior, you know, from Singaporeans. Like and all of us, you know. But that is changing, man. Like the way people now rock up to these local concerts, to our mm-hmm. concerts, the way they show love, the way they talk about Singapore music, so different. Makes me feel very happy. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) same. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, it really, like you guys said earlier, doesn't need to be this like sort of curated, manicured version of like, oh, we are multicultural, so we like represent ourselves in this manicured, like uh, government approved way. But you know, in, in... just an organic way of being ourselves, even if we didn't grow up very connected to our mother tongues or culture, like for, for Charlie or I, like I guess just being able to do what we do without trying to be something else is so important, you know, to shift the whole landscape of it. Yeah. I'd say even the commiseration of that is also part of, will That's contribute true. to the identity. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So maybe, the, maybe the cultural cringe is part of <laughs> the Singapore sound. <laughs> I yeah. think there's no point asking awesome. that. Uh, like uh, everyone, I always get interviews like, oh, what is the Singapore sound? Do you think we have felt? I don't think it matters. Me too. It's just something that, like, I think you, you, maybe you can figure it out, like, you know, retrospectively. But I don't think, like, people in Iceland just went, oh, we're going to come up with the Icelandic sound. Like, I don't think that <laughs> yeah. happened, you I, know? I feel like they're it's missing the point yeah. a little bit. You know, I think even with like K-pop and whatnot, and I guess the argument is like, oh yeah, you know, there's market size and they're more homogenous culture, etc. But then I'm just like, okay, why don't we just embrace the differences and the diversity that we have and just see where it goes. You know, we don't necessarily need to be like, oh, what is the at the essence yeah. of what, what are we, are we? Yeah, I don't think that matters. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not anymore, at least in like today's world. Yeah. Yeah, and just seeing how we've, 
we feed off and continue to feed, you know, cultures around us and how that grows into a whole new animal is rewarding in and of itself. Yeah. I foresee a day where we have a all Singaporean act festival. Mm-hmm. It's going to be called something super cool and people from all over the world will fly down to catch our festival. And I love that. And yeah. And it wouldn't even be positioned like a oh local concert. No, no, no. It's just you just say the name and everybody knows what it is. You know, yeah. and people come for Singapore next and they think we're dope just like how people go to Coachella and watch American acts, you know? Mm-hmm. We'll have that one day. Trust. We I can will, I can yeah. feel it in my bones, man. <laughs> I'm telling you. We're getting closer to that day every day. Love it. Yeah, a bunch of us tried. Obviously, not people around the world came to see it, but it was called 100 Bands Festival uh-huh. and it was in like the Coven Bus Interchange, mm-hmm. the very first one. And it was like every local band from screamo to like twee pop to 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 hip hop and like whatever. And I just remember this like screamo band just growling and screaming. And right next to them was this sort of Taoist procession for a funeral. And I thought, wow, this is the most beautiful Singapore moment I have ever witnessed. Just the clang, 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 clang of the the lights and the you know the whole funeral procession and then like a, a heavy emo screamo band so going cool. at which, it. Which year was this? Right next, I think it was like 2014 or something. I'm gonna take us through a couple more questions. Uh, actually, very related to what we're talking about, but uh, sort of looking beyond, like we've been saying, right, and accessing larger markets. Because I keep hearing, as I, I guess I was trying to do music, people saying, oh, you know, the only way to be successful as a local artist is to achieve success in other countries first. We're all a bit suspicious of something until it has received validation from somewhere yes. else. Yep. Um, and I wonder if, if I mean, I, I've heard that so much and I'm wondering, is that still the case? Do you guys still think that's the case? I do. I think it depends what you mean by success, right? So mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, if you want to be like a superstar, then like by default, you would need to conquer the world, right? So, yeah, yeah then Singapore is definitely not big enough, right? But, you know, if you're an I artist, you just want to... survive as yeah. an artist? If you just to survive, I think it's very possible. Yeah, so I think that's a... Yeah, to to do what you love, you know, and make the art that you want to make. And um, I think that's, uh, that's a really good endeavor. Yeah, I, I think... I agree with what Charlie said, which is it's about your definition of success for sure. But there's also a definition of market, you know, and I think you find the market when you find people who want uh, or need what you are serving or what you're producing. I may like the songs that I'm singing and writing in my own Mm -hmm. unique little Singlish way, but how many people will like it too? So if you're like blessed like Raja, where he comes up with something that's truly himself and then he's got like thousands of kids wanting to embrace that, then you have your market. And perhaps you don't even need to go out of Singapore. And I think we talked about how in Singapore it's so fragmented that there is no one Singapore sound, but there certainly is an audience who resonate with your sound. So even though I'm Singaporean and you guys are Singaporean, but we have very different markets, right? The music that we produce are going to attract a different kind of audience. So for Mm. me, I think half by choice and half just by the sheer size of the market, my career has always been defined by my success in the Mando pop industry because it's a big Mm -hmm. market. 
And again, it may not be doing this, the music I really love, which I mentioned is Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin. But when I start doing more of the the stuff that works in the markets, so like the ballads, you know, the the kind of more pared down groovy stuff, and that really works. And I serve the artists that are working in those markets. You know, they, they have their own unique voice and they have a market. And so when I'm there as a producer, arranger, music manager, all of these roles, I'm going to find a lot more exposure, you know, and there's this scale, there's this effect where I, I can just do the same, put in the same amount of effort, but the result at the end is tenfold, hundredfold, mm. just simply because there are more eyeballs, there's more ears listening to your product. I'll give one very clear example in my own life, which is that, you know, I spent three years uh, trying to produce music for Joanna Dong. Mm-hmm. We did YouTube videos, we put out our own records. I did some collabs, did shows. Didn't really matter. Nobody really cared, to be honest. And our big break was when she went on a China singing competition. And it wasn't so much about the competition as it was about the judges in those competitions endorsing her. The fact that Jay Chow, you know, someone who is endorsed in that sense by the Mendo market, within 15 seconds, he turned around and then he had nothing but praise for her throughout the whole series. To me, Jay Chow made her career. So I, I think, you know, going overseas has that kind of effect. For, mm. for the younger ones, again, coming back to that, I find that it's quite different. I don't feel that they need this stamp of approval. I feel that, you know, with Spotify playlists, it's very easy to hear a local group. You know, I, for example, I was on a disco playlist and I, I heard something I really loved. And I was like, who's that? And my friend was like, it's Disco Hue. I was like, they're Singaporean. No way, you know, it's so good. Can it be? <laughs> and so it doesn't matter anymore. I, I feel to the younger generation who's listening to playlists and finding music through this kind of discovery, it doesn't matter if you're Vietnamese, it doesn't matter if you're Indonesian or Singaporean, but the, the music moves you and that's what matters. Yeah. And they will follow this artist because they're authentic. Yeah, I really like what you're saying about that. Like uh, platforms like Spotify, kind of democratizing the the judgment of music process, right? Everybody kind of knows better now, knows what they like and knows what is good. Okay, I want to move on to to talk about ecosystems and technology, right? And I think you guys are really the right brains to pick for this. So one of the reasons music flourished in the 1960s was because um, Singapore music could tap on other ecosystems like the local movie industry, which was burgeoning at the time, as showcases for local songs. And we had Rediffusion and, you know, all of those other ecosystems. And I I think many of you have worked in other areas of the arts, like theatre. For me, it wasn't just cross-disciplinary work from other industries, but also sort of community spaces that we used to have, you know, the substation, home club that brought together different musicians from many different genres or like visual artists, filmmakers, literary scene, all kind of, you know, being in in spaces like that that lead to collaborations and opportunities. And I'm wondering for you guys, what are these ecosystems that have shaped your development as artists? I'll start because I came back from Berkeley in 2002. And so I'll speak about, you know, that decade 2002 to about 2012. Yeah, I was performing a lot at that time at the Esplanade. And I have to say that really felt like home for me. Like, I I think I was there at least once a week, watching something, playing something, music directing something, doing a theater show. There was always something going on. I think that made a huge difference. I wish I had that, you know, in the 90s 
when I was growing up because I had so much more time then, obviously, as a student, you know, that's yeah. where I want to hang out, you know. And it wasn't just local acts, but they were bringing in pop acts. And I think that is something that solidified that decade for me, that it was a very vibrant space that was world-class that mm. we felt privileged to perform in. And we could put up all sorts of different types of acts. So I was with my girl band. I was featured as a solo artist. And then I was doing this Sing Yao thing with TCR Music Station. Talking about TCR Music Station, I think it's important that with the venues, we have concert promoters. You know, people who are so passionate about a certain kind of music that they create a movement. You know, Sing mm. Yao, people think it died in late 80s, it kind of fizzled out, you know. But the people who live through the era are very much alive, you know. Mm -hmm. And so once a year or maybe twice a year, TCR Music Station, they bring these singer artists back together again in this huge concert. They started yeah. out really small and slowly they grew it. That's how it goes, you know. You do something you're passionate about. You have venue support, you have artist support, you have the audience support. It just grows and grows and grows. And I, I think I was very lucky to live through that kind of ecosystem in that decade. Coupled with, mm. I'll just say one more thing that I was very lucky to hop into, which is the concert tour. So I want, mm. always wanted to be a music producer. But when I came back from Berkeley, uh, you know, there was the age of piracy and P2P and recordings kind of just was slowly crashing. But live took off. And so I kind of caught that wind of the Stephanie Sons, you know, the Amaze, where their music directors were Singaporeans. And so they chose mm. Singaporean musicians to be in their bands and we would tour not just greater China but we would go to wherever there's Chinese diaspora really these are the kind of opportunities I feel I was given by the previous generation and I really hope to be able to give back in that way to younger musicians so that they can get that kind of exposure and opportunities much sooner yeah how about you guys yeah. I mean you guys lived through the I think 2010 and after What's yeah, the yeah. ecosystems like? <laughs> yeah, you, Charlie, especially with like Blue Jazz and I guess, you know, all of those smaller communities, but also with your connection to Melbourne and everything. Yeah. What did those ecosystems look like for you? For me, like, you know, even though I was living in Melbourne at the time, we'll come back every year, you know, for holiday and like, I'll try to book like a mini tour. <laughs> I just try to play a show every day in the, the time I was back in, in Singapore and just like play every backpackers like pub. You oh, know, no, and then workings, yeah. I was, I was actually the first act to play at Blue Jazz. This is something that I'm very proud of because I'm not wow, a jazz musician. The first ever act. That I like gave my demo CD to the owner. I was like, hey, I really want to play your thing. You don't have to pay me. I just want to, you know, do like, yeah, Damn. just wow. get experience. Not many people know this because I was very bad and it was very embarrassing at the time. I think uh, I got quick. I got replaced um, shortly after I enlisted. <laughs> um, but those were those were really good times if I didn't have those like opportunities to like you know work on my craft then yeah I definitely would not be doing what I do today you know and when I look back at you know those I guess formative years <laughs> yeah uh, I think that was a very important part of uh, you know being able to you know perform as a musician and that. I think spaces are really important community spaces are really important and for me like yeah Similar to, to yourself, Ruth, like the Esplanade to me was like, yeah, the, the go-to thing that uh, we all looked up to in any festivals. Obviously, the Mosaic Festival, that was a big deal for me. Getting to play it after going to it, you know, as a spectator for so long. Um, and then having our own show at the concert hall back in 2015. 
I think that kind of also broke some, yeah, maybe misconceptions that a local band, a local act could never like sell out mm-hmm. a concert hall. Mm-hmm. A concert hall, yeah. So yeah. I think from then on, like, you know, more and more local artists are just like, yeah, let's just do it. Why don't we just work with the Esplanade and just, you know, book out the venue, <laughs> mm-hmm. make it work. Yeah, we all just kind of pushed each other along. And so that was very encouraging. I'm just thinking also about Bay Beats, right? Mm-hmm. And, oh, well, and yeah. how um, Bay Beats is like, bringing you know everything from death metal from indonesia mm. and like jazz or very sub genres that are not very well known from around the region and putting them together or like punk rock band plain sunset having something like i don't know 10 to 12000 people show up mm. at the powerhouse stage wow. for their massive comeback at bay beats awesome. and it's like we don't need any further testament that yeah. that people care and that, that we're here right yeah, what about you, Rajit? Well, I started off as an actor. Like, one of my earliest dreams has right, always yes, been to, to be an artist, you know. But it just the idea of being an artist, the idea of being an entertainer has been in my mind, like, since I was very young. But it took all these different forms. I was acting, and then I went into music and drama company, and then I was a host. And then I would uh, MC in all these clubs and in all these hip-hop nights. I would be the guy yelling everybody to put their hands up. <laughs> and yeah. I would be like... But all Good these training. different things that, yeah, like I didn't put myself in a box and I was just trying to find it, just trying to find what is the medium that speaks to me the most and the medium that I could be creative in, creative using and be as seamless as I can in my expression or in my creativity, you know. Mm. It wasn't until I found music, which was about six, 2017, around that time. And one of my biggest goals also in the realm of trying to or wanting to be an artist was to ask myself like how can I be for Singapore Mm. I saw a lot of artists my peers and they were doing a lot of work a lot of things that were for their communities and it was all within their community and it's not like we are a super big country in the first place you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. so you want to talk about a small community within a small country it's like you're talking to what 10,000 people like it just didn't make sense one of my goals was how can it be expanded? How can it all be like one nation? How can I speak to my whole country? And I never would have thought that rap music or music would be the platform or like the avenue that allows me to do that. Getting the opportunity to do music and for it to not be just targeted to like very specific demographic and for it to be enjoyed by a wider audience. All the things that I went through has allowed me to cater my creativity for everybody, you know? We've talked all about all these types of ecosystems, but I guess looking towards the future, a big ecosystem is technology. And I'm thinking about, you know, Charlie being part of a team launching a new DAO. I'm thinking about Ruth's startup. What do you think the future looks like in terms of tech empowering artists and being a sort of new big ecosystem for everybody to live in? Charlie, tell them about the Great Wave, baby. Please. Tell them about the Great oh Wave. Oh my gosh, we're going to be here for another two hours. <laughs> oh no, I, I just threw you into the deep end yeah. of the Great Wave. This whole... To be washed. Oh my gosh. No, I, <laughs> well, I think, I think it's an exciting time. Um, I'm generally like cautiously optimistic about Web3. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think blockchain as a tech is, you know, it's going to be implemented whether we like it or not, right? It's just how we use it. Right, and I think a decentralized, autonomous 
organization or a DAO, you know, can be one of those vehicles to try and empower artists and communities. So we are we're trying it out. I think for me personally, it's also to see if we can incentivize like collaboration for local artists and partner them up with international artists as well. I think the cross-pollination of audiences, I think that'll be interesting getting different producers on board, engineers as well, visual artists. It's kind of giving me strange nostalgic vibes for the times that used to happen so organically, right? When like every Friday without fail, you'll be hanging out somewhere. There are 10 people who do different things who want to be like, hey, you want visuals for your music video or not? Or hey, I can do a live, I can do lighting, I can do live visuals for your show or like uh, you want an album cover yeah. <laughs> kind of kind of uh, I mean all of those things I think used to happen so quickly and organically but creating new spaces for that in the ever-changing world mm. that we live in yeah definitely yeah I'm really excited for that you know I, I wanted to say that tech has definitely changed the music industry we see that in the many many years of music industry recording history right Tech always changes the medium in which consumers consume the music. So much so that I feel like live music has become like this traditional art form now. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's right. so organic. It's like five human bodies on stage with... What, How with, quaint. <laughs> yeah, no animation behind. Like, what? <laughs> no strobe lights. Like, you know I mean? It's not synced to the MIDI. How can this be? <laughs> you know, I agree with what Charlie said, which is the shift towards Web3, I think is inevitable, but it's not quite here yet. I mean, it, we, we're not at the tipping point. You know, we haven't really gotten our heads around to what is the metaverse or, you know, we, we haven't had our royalties come to us in blockchain, which uh, I think is a wonderful thing for musicians, by the way. You know, why do we need all mm-hmm. these gatekeepers and the, <laughs> the these slow accounting systems, which are not very transparent? I mean, it, the hope of a technology like blockchain is that it would be transparent, right? I think a lot of people in the music industry are trying to solve this problem of this broken system where our work as musicians isn't valued, you know, in terms of the creation being a net monetary loss. So you spend money to create this thing which gives people pleasure, but then they consume it for free or very little. So how can you be motivated to make more music? You know, it's like, it's a free good, you know, it doesn't make sense. But that's terrible because the world needs more artists the world is a better place with more music. So we need to incentivize artists to do their best work. And what that means is not spending all their time earning money by going through ad endorsements because they have to, you know, because everybody needs to make a living. And so we're trying to solve this problem and we hope that we can find new ways in tech and in finance help musicians to really get the kind of support that they deserve, you know. So whether it's helping the audience that, who are supporting them to uh, directly support them by buying their merchandise or showing up to their live events or live streaming or other kinds of merchandise such as you know NFT and all that. It has to be done in, in a way that is a win-win. So the artists win, their fans also win, and mm. the people who are in the middle giving some service to both sides also can win, right? has to be something like that. I think that kind of ecosystem... It's not quite here yet. So in terms of the startup, I think I've been thinking for quite a lot of different fields, using tech in education, like, for example, making the music industry deals a lot more transparent, giving more industry-specific knowledge to young musicians who are coming out of college, you know, what are publishing deals, how to make multiple income streams from your music. Education, I think, is one big part of it. 
But other yeah. than that, you know, the distribution of music, is it in, you know, something like what Charlie is doing, a collective? Is it in NFT? Is it pairing with animation in the way that I feel that the metaverse, whether you're a gamer or not, I think it's, it's already a very huge part of our entertainment industry. And it's something that could fuse with music to become a very creative product of value. So I think looking into all of that, creating new ways, I think, to monetize all of this music, you know, I think is, is a very important space that people who love music need to step into so that mm. it is done in a, a way that is with integrity. Yeah. So that's what I'm exploring. Everything's a work in progress. Yep. But like, no, so grateful for people like you guys who keep thinking about how to improve the lives and survival yeah. of artists as a whole. And, you know, not just in our own little bubbles doing, making our own thing, but like really trying to improve the world around it yes. for everybody. Hmm. What about you, young Raja? Like being native to so integral and so native to like digital social communities. What is that like for you? I mean, I was born in 95 and that's the age of the internet, you know. So that's like, yeah. I grew up with Web 1 and then getting to see Web 2, which was social media, more or less, and then Web 3. It's all very exciting. Like, I, we, we don't know, like, less than 5% of the world population is into crypto and NFTs and metaverse. Less than 5%. But it may yeah. look like, wow, a lot of people are talking about it. But no, like, mass adoption hasn't, hasn't kicked in yet. And mm -hmm. we're all figuring it out. We are all trying to stay on top of things as it's unfolding at such a rapid rate. And being somebody that is born in 95, same year internet was born, I am all about that. Like I said, right, if it wasn't for Twitter, I'm not sure what I'd be doing right now. Newer tech means newer things, more exciting things, things that weren't previously possible to achieve. Can't wait to see what, three years later, what the scene would look like or what the world's landscape would look like. Possibly completely different, right? Given yeah. how rapidly things have been shifting. Yeah, because remember, remember the days when Facebook just came out and then you knew like yeah. 10 people that had Facebook. Or remember when iPhone came out and then everybody was still using phones that had keypads in it and very few people had touchscreen phones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yo, everybody has a touchscreen phone right now. We don't even realize it. Like, mm -hmm. It's only been what, a few years. Yeah, yeah. When was the last time you saw somebody that had buttons on their phones? The same <laughs> thing. Like we wouldn't be posting pictures up anymore for our social media, like the way we socialize. We won't be posting pictures with captions anymore. We'll be doing other things. I'll pro we'll probably be having a chat right now like this, but in the metaverse and we'll all be wearing some kind of goggles, <laughs> Oculus. And we'll, yeah, and, man. And we can, My you know. My avatar will be pouring me some water. <laughs> yeah, like we'll be hanging out. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's all so exciting, right? Like I, I, I'm all for it. I, I can't wait to see. Let's sort of see if we've got any wrap-up things to say about Singapore Pop or what we're looking forward to or what the scene is for you in a nutshell or anybody got like closing things to share. Maybe I'll add on to something that, I mean, Ruth was also saying, how, yeah, maybe, you know, now it's like there's no better time to do it now and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I would say it's also very difficult and intimidating for a lot of people to enter yeah. this space because it feels like you have to be everything these days. You're not just the writer, the performer. You have to curate yourself. You're your own brand yeah. manager. You're your own social media manager. You write. You have to figure out how to write Producer. captions and talk to people. And it's really, it's really crazy. Yeah. I guess I hope that the tech and whatever things that we're building on allows also for more specialization. It allows for more people to bring their contributions to the table and be recognized for it and to add to a bigger picture. Generally, I feel like I'm quite optimistic when it comes to like the future of Singaporean pop music. For example, I, th I guess my, my hope is like that 
just keeps opening more doors. First of all, people to be proud of, you know, their own artists and musicians, and but also then to check out more, slightly more obscure stuff that they or underground stuff that they would never have had an opportunity to in the mm-hmm. first place. You know, hopefully mm-hmm. it opens more doors for that as well. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Just making space and, you know, making sure that we level the playing field mm-hmm. every time we sort of move forward, right? And have space for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, for me, you know, I, I'm suddenly realizing there was a bit of a dearth of local acts between probably 2000 and 2010. But one of the first acts that I saw that kind of um, inspired me again to feel that Singapore music actually sounds completely different was Charlie's show I think it was probably 2012 or 2013 in the attic of Blue Jazz and it was full Mm. and Charlie and his band were just doing their thing and then I saw these young people go crazy shortly after that I saw people singing like every lyric to Gentle Bones and then shortly after that, I saw people at the Sam Willows, like a restaurant gig or something, and it was like crowded. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a scene, you know? And, you know, coming back to what we were saying about the Singapore sound is about the young Singaporeans growing up with this kind of exposure. You know, they, they get exposed, of course, via the internet to every kind of music available. But if domestically they're hearing our local acts and they're going to these shows and they're being influenced and inspired then the sound that's coming out from this next generation is going to be totally different. And they're just going to think it's so normal that all of these local acts should have such crowded shows, like what we were saying about the acts in the 60s and also in the 90s. I'm very, very excited about the future. I hope that I can continue to contribute. I'm um, very excited to see how we can continue to force Singaporeans to have an opinion on things, how we can continue to expose Singaporeans to what we have to offer. You know, I mean, we've been doing that steadily over the last couple of decades but i think it's ramping up now thanks to how connected the world is thanks to social media thanks to internet and the more we force singaporeans to have an opinion the more the scene will grow i feel and i think that's exactly where we are at right now we are right in the middle of that evolution like i said man i'm very excited to see where singapore's music scene will be in five years and how diverse and integrated it will be and how globalized it'll be yeah i'm so hopeful i'm so excited i have so much faith that's really rubbing off on me right now. And it's, it's, no, it's so nice to hear because you get this general feeling, right? Especially now during, during the pandemic, like in your own little bubble, like, I think it's good. I think it's good. I think it's going up. But then to hear all three of you from vastly like different pockets of the scene with su- such different experiences, mm-hmm. both here and outside of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and to hear everybody kind of chiming in and feeling this same, you know, rise or burgeoning of something to yeah. come is is the best it's the best feeling <laughs> so thank you so much for that thank thanks so you. much for joining me today charlie roost and young raja uh, it's Woo. been such a pleasure Woo. yeah hearing from all of <laughs> I'm you i'm loving today. the thunderstorm asmr it's a big one it's, it's definitely a big one we're like the future is bright <laughs> 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 where the underscore comes in and Pop Law Stories of Singapore Pop is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre, in celebration of its 20th anniversary. Look out for all our episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To listen to more of the songs mentioned in the series, check out our music playlists on esplanade.com offstage. <laughs>